Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced in the beautiful surrounds of Crawford School at the Australian National University. Crawford is the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about our amazing range of short courses or degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. Do check it out. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined in the Crawford Cupboard today by Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. I'm great. And it's good to be back. I've been away for a while. Where have you been? Uh, well, I've actually just had my head down with teaching and marking. Nowhere exciting. Uh, nowhere, gla- I, nowhere glamorous. Then. I, actually, that's not true. I was in Wellington for a week and that was very exciting. Hey, did you take the Policy Forum board mug with you? I did not, but I have a photo of it on my phone, so I can show people. Well, I think <laughs> I think we'd like to share that on our social media. So do do please uh, do please uh, send that to us. Sharon, uh, in case you don't know, is a professor here at Crawford School. She's also the ANU lead of the amazing Individual Deprivation Measure Project. You should definitely check that out. So, Sharon, what has caught your eye in the wide world of public policy over the last week? Well, there's been quite a lot happening over the last week. I guess um, at a global level, the the ramping up of tensions between Iran and the United States is is incredibly worrying. Um, we've had in Australia indications that the Adani mine is going ahead. I think that's incredibly disturbing in terms of the long term consequences. Um, and the discussion about the science and the way in which the science has been overridden by the politics, I think, is very disturbing there. But I wanted to really focus in on um, an issue that's or a, a story that's just breaking, which is yet another example of the violation of children's rights in um, juvenile detention in Australia with, um, again, in Queensland, uh, a young Indigenous boy um, who is um, suffering from um, an intellectual disability, being locked up, being stripped naked and left naked in a cell with other young people for four days um, before there is intervention and, and this boy was given support. So I think this is just appalling and how many times do we have to hear stories of young people being abused in custody? How many times do we have to hear stories of institutional abuse of people um, across all age groups in Australia? You know, it is time that we took stock of what this means for us as a society and we held people and institutions accountable. So what does that, I mean, it's a terrible story, but from a policy point of view, what can we do to tackle that? Well, I think... I think part of it is around um, the processes that are used when um, young people are taken into custody. It's around holding people to account. But I think more broadly, it's also about looking much more deeply and responding in a much more nuanced and sophisticated way to the underlying causes um, of what's leading to the problems that we're seeing manifest in this way. Um, You know, if we look at the the percentage of young people, or the, if we look at the profile of young people who end up in detention, you know, the vast majority are Indigenous. Um, there was a story a couple of weeks ago that announced that 100% of young people being held in youth detention in the Northern Territory at that point were Indigenous. Um, so there are clearly some underlying factors around why young people are ending up in these situations. Um, and we need to get to those structural causes. We need to get to the um, addressing the inequality, the lack of opportunity and the racism that's resulting in young people, particularly Indigenous young people, ending up in these situations, but we also need to address the processes um, that are leading to the violations that occur when they are in detention. So I think it's a, it's, it's a multifaceted problem and we have to deal with it in a multifaceted way. It's a really big issue which clearly needs some uh 
significant thought in terms of how we approach it from a policy point of view. So thanks for sharing that with us, Sharon, however terrible and tragic that story is. But listeners, we're keen to get your thoughts on the issues that Sharon has uh, just discussed there. Um, The best way to do that, of course, is to jump onto our Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. And lots of people have done that. And there's been some really interesting discussions there over the last couple of weeks. We've had discussions around Australia's recycling policy, climate change mitigation, and fiscal policy. And we're going to be getting to some of that a bit later in our comments and suggestions section. So hang on in there, listeners. We will cover that a little bit later. But I Uh, have to ask, Martin, is anyone talking about the World Cup? Well, that's a good question as well. Have you been watching a lot of that? Oh, of course I have. Yes. The most exciting moment in every four years is the Women's World Cup. It's been very high quality football as well, hasn't it? There have been some great games. Apart from poor Thailand. I know. That's, yeah difficult to watch. But if we think about the lack of resourcing to women's football generally, but to the lack of resourcing and the challenges for the, the, the women's team from Thailand, I think they did an amazing job to be there. So yeah, I, I agree. And it's fantastic to see the development of the women's game as well. Some really high quality, uh, high quality football. It is. Yeah. It's, it's really exciting to watch. And hopefully we'll see Australia going through to the next round. Well, fingers crossed, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, we will know the answer to that question. Now, while I've got you here, listeners, and before we get on to the topic of today's pod, I do want to remind you that there are two ways that you can get your hands on one of our very rare Policy Forum pod mugs. Number one is you jump on our Facebook group and you suggest a topic for a podcast that we later create if you do that you have won a mug. The second way is uh, to have your comments or questions read out on the pod, and that's either this Policy Forum pod or on Democracy Sausage. Uh, And if you hear one of your questions and comments read out, just leave us a note under the Facebook post about it. Just say, question one, question two, and once you get up to question five, you will get your hands on one of these mugs. If you don't want to get in touch with us on Facebook, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to have a chat to us on Facebook, but there are other ways to do so. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or you can go old school and email podcast at policyforum.net. We love hearing from you. Now, how about we get on with the topic of this week's show? Because I'm quite looking forward to this one. We want to have a look at what the new government should put on its policy agenda. We're going to approach this from hopefully quite an interesting and fun and novel way. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking quite closely at why the poor polls got it so wrong on our democracy sausage pod and what Australians had signed up for in terms of policies on a previous policy forum pod. We've also had a look at what to expect from the new government regarding Indigenous policy and whether the appointment of Ken Wyatt marks a step towards a clear Indigenous voice in Parliament. But on this podcast, we want to do things a bit differently. We want to move away from what the government committed to do and instead ask our expert panel, what should the new government put on its policy agenda? And we've got a fantastic lineup of experts to put forward their suggestions. All of them have just been whisked over from the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation's fantastic event, Miracles or Mayhem, a post-election policy forum, which was held at the National Library. And they took there about what the new coalition government will mean for Australia's long-term trajectory. Uh, And the recording of that event is going to be up on the ANU's podcast channel a bit later this week for your listening pleasure, and we will leave a link to it in the show notes. But for now, how about, Sharon, you tell us who we're actually going to hear from today. Martin, we've got a fantastic lineup of speakers today. So three outstanding thinkers to shine some light on what they think um, the government should be focusing on. Professor Helen Sullivan is Director of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Helen, of course, established the Melbourne School of Government in 2013, um, and she brings um, an enormous amount of of experience um, and deep thinking around what policy should look like. We also have Professor Janine O'Flynn. Janine is Professor of Public Management at the Melbourne School of Government and the Australian and New Zealand School of Government. Formerly of Crawford, of course. I was about to add that, her most important accolade. (laughs) She was Professor here at Crawford. She is part of the extended Crawford School family. (laughs) She is indeed. (laughs) Um, And she's also a fellow at the Institute of um, Public Administration Australia. So it is nice to welcome Janine back. 
We also have Anala Cooper. Anala is an Indigenous activist. She is the engagement lead at Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity at the University of Melbourne. Um, and she was also speaking at the National Library earlier today along with Helen and Janine. So this is a fantastic lineup. It's going to be great and perhaps a little fun to hear what they say. I think it is going to be fun because we've asked them to come up with three specific policy pitches that they would suggest for the new government. So I'm really interested to hear what they're going to put forward. I suspect there'll be some some fairly interesting and progressive ideas in there. And I'm looking forward to hearing what our listeners have to say about it. Now, I'm going to step back from this one. I'm going to leave it in your very capable hands, Sharon, but I will be back in part three to go over some of our listener comments and questions. But for now, I'm going to hand over to you and hand over to our panel. Welcome, Helen. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, good to be here. Janine, thank you. Great. It's great to be back. And Anala, welcome to the Crawford School. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Thank you all for joining us today. In many of our podcasts over the last few weeks, we've asked our panellists why the polls got it so wrong in the lead up to Australia's recent federal election. We got them to analyse the government's new policies and to show us what Australians have actually signed up for. But this time, we want to take a slightly different approach. Now, I should say here that I've recently seen the movie Aladdin, and so I'm going to use some terrible, terrible puns here around genies and lamps. Just for this occasion, we've got our magical policy genie lamp with us. Our panellists are going to rub it, and our genie will grant them just three policy wishes. We're going around our table, one by one, to ask our panellists to give us their policy proposals and how the government could possibly put them into practice. So what we're looking for here is really some short, sharp policy pitches. We'll start with one suggestion per person, and then we'll ask our other panellists to share their thoughts. So let's begin with you, Anala. If you had your first wish in terms of what you'd like the government to do, what would that be? My first wish would be that they take the Uluru Statement from the heart seriously, with respect uh, for the work that has gone into it and with respect for the traction that it's gained within not just the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community but the broader Australian community. There's been decades upon decades uh, of trying to work with different governments to achieve uh, recognition of uh, First Peoples here in Australia but also recognition of our self-determination over our own business. Uh, so that's my first wish that they take it seriously and they really listen and now that we have an Indigenous person finally overseeing the Indigenous Affairs portfolio, uh, hopefully we'll start to see a bit more movement. Yeah, fantastic. I think that would be fairly close to the top of my wishes as well, Anala. Mm. Um, we've heard a lot of discussion about the fact that um, with Ken White entering the Cabinet, we have um, Australia's first Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Affairs, which is extraordinary mm. that it's only in 2019 that yes. we have an Indigenous person in that position. But um, how important do you think that is in terms of the likelihood of the Uluru Statement being taken seriously and more broadly for Indigenous issues in this country? It's very important. And now that Minister Wyatt uh, is taking care of that portfolio, there's an opportunity for his voice as a representative of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community uh, to get get his cabinet colleagues on side and really listening and understanding the importance of this very generous gift that we are giving the nation. Indigenous peoples here on the continent are our, our hosts, the gracious hosts, often to our detriment. And this is a gift that uh, we want to give the Australian community. Um, short of a total overhaul of the constitution itself, I think the way the Uluru Statement is framed and the way in which it uh, proposes a voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution is a good start. If we're thinking about systems change, things don't happen overnight. So I hope that Minister Wyatt um, receives the support and the respect of his colleagues uh, to make this happen. Anala, I, I don't want to turn this around to be a negative, but I do want to ask you, what does it mean for Indigenous people in this country when 
the the Uluru statement is not taken seriously or when it's not taken up by politicians? Oh, well, it can be devastating, particularly for people who have worked so hard. Some some people, their entire lives have been devoted to um, Indigenous rights and social justice. Um, and when things like this are not taken seriously, it can be a real... Um, can be a real kick in the guts for for want of a better expression. Um, it can be disheartening, and what it does is it diminishes our well being. Um, we are strong and resilient. Um, we've got longest continuous cultures on the planet, so we've got deep, deep roots here on this country and this land. And I mean, there are many other things that we see from government and in the media that are just as devastating on a day-to-day basis, like incarceration rates, the way our river systems are being handled, the way, you know, access to healthcare or housing, the the rejection um, of things like this can just be the icing on the cake for some people and organisations and families. So it's it's hard, um, but we have to keep going. What What else can we do but keep going? So I think now that Minister Wyatt is in place to oversee the portfolio um, is a huge step in in the right direction. Um, And the Uluru Statement, like I said before, it's a gift to the nation and it's not going to be, it's not only going to be good for Indigenous people, it's going to be good for everybody. So, Anala, I think you have set the bar very high to start with. You know, let's let's reflect deeply on the soul of the nation. (laughs) (laughs) Janine, I'm going to hand this magical genie lamp to you. What would be your number one policy wish? Um, Well, I'm a real, um, as as some listeners will know, a bit of a public sector wonk. And so I want to take some uh, inspiration, actually, from Inala's um, points and think about what that means for how government itself operates. Um, what is the vision of the Australian government? How does it think about this extraordinary um, asset, if you want to think about it in that way, that it has in the Australian public service? And how does it think about how it uses that um, to steward the future of, of the nation? What is the vision um, and the purpose for the Australian public service and how might we think about designing that in a way um, that might make a big difference? At the moment, um, as many listeners will know, there's a big review going on of the Australian public service and it's focused a lot on how it gets the work of government does done, but I think it's focused less on what's the purpose of the public service and what it's actually here to do. Um Many will know that in New Zealand there's been a big reorientation to thinking about well-being and the role of government in trying to even budget for the well-being of of the nation. So there's a real change in mindset there. And one of the things that really um, I'm struck by is this sense of stewardship. It's so deeply embedded into um, our Indigenous sort of way of life in Australia and this sense of uh, stewarding for those that are coming and and sort of for what's come. Inala talked about, you know, our waterways and climate and so on. These are all extraordinary sort of aspects of stewardship of lands and, and so on, family and kin. And it would be extraordinary, I think, to get some of those ideas in the way we think about what government does. It doesn't have to be paternalistic deciding for us what to do, but it should be thinking about how it stewards very complex systems and works with communities to get things done. So for me, the the wish would be, I suppose, a change of mindset rather than a policy, specific policy, but really to think about that. And I think tapping that wisdom and knowledge, um, you know, of of the traditional owners of these lands is a, is a way to revolutionise how we think about how government gets its work done. I think that's a fantastic way of sort of building on another suggestion. And people who listen to the pod regularly will know that I am often going on about intergenerational inequality and what it is that we are leaving for future generations or what we're not leaving for them. And I think that idea of stewardship is a really nice way of thinking about what it is that we leave as the legacy for the future. Janine, can I push you just a little bit further on what you do around that? Is is there something in terms of a first practical step that you think we need to really have this idea of stewardship take hold as part of the vision or part of the, the foundation on which the public service works? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing some work recently to um, 
to sort of set out some ideas for the independent review and and particularly in relation to how it commissions and contracts for services. But I think, um, you know, stewardship is much more than about how do we go about, you know, who's going to deliver what. It's about... Um, we, we talk in a paper that we recently wrote about, you know, catalyzing a supply side revolution in government. What would it mean if government actually used its its weight and its ability to invest, you know, billions and billions of dollars um, to actually catalyze a, a revolution in how it gets that done? You know, underpinning social enterprises, changing laws and rules around procurement so that very different types of organisations could emerge and work with government in new ways. So we set out in that paper sort of some um, ways that it can catalyse that supply side revolution. So we'd see very different types of um, organisations that might work with government who would be independent of government and not necessarily in these transactional types of relationships. Um, and we pair that in in that work with this idea of getting relational, moving away from transactional bases of um, interacting with other organisations and, and communities towards really thinking about um, the nature of the relationship that will help us to get done what we need to get done. Some of that can be transactional, you know, buying pencils or pens, if we do such things anymore, um, but you can't really do um, sort of major um major things in the area of Indigenous policy or NDIS where we're spending billions and billions of dollars without thinking about long-term intergenerational relationships. Helen, I'm now going to hand the magic lamp to you and ask what you would like the policy genie to grant to you in terms of your first wish. Thanks, Sharon. Well, I think um, the policy genie has, has rocked up at an appropriate moment uh, for my policy suggestion, um, which is that we now have a very clear and meaningful policy on climate change. And why I think the, the genie's arrived at an, uh, an opportune moment is that uh, for so long this debate in Australia has been um, determined by the extremes of, of particular um, individuals in parties aided and abetted by um, aspects of the media. Um, we now have a, a coalition government that A, didn't expect to win, B, um, is uh, denuded of some of its more perhaps we might say um, conflictual um, actors. Uh, and this seems to me to be a great time to really think beyond having an argument about whether we're climate sceptics or uh, true believers and simply going to the practicalities of what is it that we can do to address the emergency situation that we have in the world but also in Australia around climate. So we will go to the next rounds of wishes for each of you soon but I'm going to just jump in here and keep the focus on climate change for a little bit more because I think in terms of Anala's point about, you know, the the destruction of our waterways, Janine, what you said about stewardship um, comes directly to Helen's point about climate change here. So maybe I, I, I can subvert the process just a little bit and say, let's have our second set of policy wishes focusing on climate change just a little. And Anala, perhaps come back to you to pick up on specifically on this issue of climate change. Are there things that you would like to see happen immediately in this space from the new government? Absolutely. I think there needs to be more thought and more um, public discussion about the alternatives about renewables, about, you know, a lot of what is what I see around, you know, climate action or um, the decisions that governments are making around mining and things like that is it's framed that it means more jobs for more people. And that's what folks will respond to. What's in it for me and my kids? Are they going to have a job to go to? But what if there were going to be hundreds or perhaps thousands more jobs if we went the other way and stopped mining the ground and started looking at alternatives and looking at renewables and um, examples from other places around the world that are doing it well? What if there were thousands more jobs to be had? Um, if that's what, what people or voters are responding to, I'd like to see more of that, um, you know, on the, in the mainstream media so that... Um, you know, your average citizen is getting exposed to alternatives and a different way of thinking about our future as a country 
uh, the future for our kids and our grandkids, but also today how they're going to engage in the workforce. It doesn't have to just be we're digging big holes in the ground to the detriment of, uh, you know, future generations, but to the detriment of our, our environment. This is, you know, precious sacred land that we're mining and, and doing all sorts too. And my second thought, I suppose, in particular on things like waterways is the Murray-Darling uh, Basin, the Murray-Darling River system. You know, there was a, the, I can't remember the person's name on TV that was telling telling us, well, we're in drought and that's the answer. That's why the rivers have dried up. No, I'm sorry. It's not just because we're in drought. They're failing to expose or, or highlight the huge percentages of, of water that is being siphoned off for irrigation. Um, so then they've got I suppose farmers and others who are um, wanting to know where their water is going to be coming from to sustain their their farms. Um, but what we really need to see when it comes to things like river systems and anything relating to climate change is governments taking seriously the engagement and collaboration with First Nations people because we've been here for 60, 80,000 years. Um, if anyone, if you want an expert, um, the experts are here. Um, so and until governments get serious about that with, with serious empowerment um, back to communities to manage the environment, then, yeah, that, that's what I'd like the, the magic genie to, to <laughs> pop out of the lamp next. I love the fact that you're picking up on the genie <laughs> idea. <laughs> Janine, over to you for your next wish or, or your wish on climate change from, from our genie. Um, and particularly, you know, in relation to the comments that you made about stewardship, how does this all fit together when we're thinking about climate change? Well, I think part of the issue that we've had um, in Australia on the climate change debate is that we've become a bit religious, really, and we've had very, you know, we've had like warring factions um, around it. And the other challenge I see is that we have um, decided to frame this only in terms of economics. Um, and so when we, when we do that, we tend to make issues either small or, or sort of divorce them from the reality of human, human life. Now that might sound a little philosophical, um, but I think it's a very important point. It's hard to have a moral debate when all we can talk about is money or who's going to win jobs or lose jobs in the immediate future when what we really need to be thinking about um, is sort of transitions over time. I think it's extraordinarily important to tap the deep knowledge and evidence that we have in Australia about how to do, um, you know, sort of long-term intergenerational stewardship. That's been happening for tens of thousands of years in, on these lands in a way that has been um, ignored in a sense, for the last few hundred years. And I think that framing um, these only in terms of economics doesn't get us very far um, at all. So part of mine would be, part of my wish, I suppose, if I was granted it, would be to see that entire conversation broaden out much more. It's one of the things that um, I've always loved about the Crawford School is the ability to bring different perspectives to bear on those sort of issues um, and, and to say these aren't just economic problems, they're not just political problems, um, they're really problems that are going to require all of that grunt to get to, get to some answers. Helen, you, you released the genie on climate change, so I wanted to come back to you at this point. Um, um, and I wanted particularly to pick up, or initially at least, on Anala's point around you know, when we have people seeing their futures and their children's futures only in terms of the jobs that might come from things like coal mining um, and the consequences that that has in terms of them being able to think about alternatives. Now, I think that's such an important issue and that's where we've perhaps seen a failure of leadership in Australia because the vision for alternatives hasn't been presented. But I know a lot of your work is centred around issues of inequality, you know, of, of people who are, are, are on the margins. How would you pick up on that issue of how we might engage with people who are living in communities that have always been dependent on approaches to an economy that are really detrimental to the environment to shift their way of thinking and to show them different alternatives? Mm, that's a really great question. And and I've been thinking a lot about this. Well, I was in Queensland for the election and so 
um, the day after the election was was look and the days after that was looking at the the newspapers um, and seeing the very different narratives that were coming through um, the, the the local media compared to the um, some of the national press and uh, and certainly um, experienced very uh, very clearly and very intimately this sense that there are people who are not understood and who whether you like it or not, who see their way of life as bound up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, in, in a particular economic enterprise with a particular set of expectations that go with that and who feel that they are somehow... Um, derided by uh, the what you know what they might see as the kind of metropolitan communities of Melbourne and Sydney, and and that chimes not um, just with other issues in Australia and and indeed other parts of Australia. But um, one of the things I've been looking at is the response in the UK um, to the Brexit debate, um, and this may seem like a bit of a stretch, but it but trust me, it, it is connected. And one of the the consequences of industrial decline in the UK has been the decline of um, traditional industries. Coal went first many many years ago, um, and we're now seeing um, the the latest uh, closure of a, a major steelworks in the in the north of England. And one of the the reasons behind that, in terms of um, connecting that uh, change. And economic change with why people who who live in that constituency voted to leave the European Union um, when it appeared that that was you know completely counterintuitive to you know what the the Canberra commentariat if, uh, if to use Janine's phrase or you know the chattering classes might think about Brexit was precisely because they saw the European Union as a uh, as an institution that actually discouraged investment in local places. They saw the European Union as, as a an institution that did not have their best interests at heart. And so, for me, this isn't just a question of Queensland and coal um, and Australia. This is a much broader question of how do you. Um, bring back into the political project people who feel that they have been ignored um, and who feel that uh, when they articulate their views, they are accused of being stupid um, at best or self-interested at worst in a way that we don't consider um, other views. And so I think this is a hugely difficult problem. Um, and I don't think there is an easy way of saying, well, if you do this, this and this, you can bring people around. Um, and I think particularly uh, in Australia um, on this issue of, of climate change and the connection with how people think they live, see themselves living their lives and the security for their families, um, that we have a, such a long way to go to even get people to recognise that they're talking about the same thing, um, let alone coming up with some uh, changes of mind. Now, can you do it? Of course you can. Should we be doing it? Absolutely, we must. Um, one of the ways in which um, one could think about doing this is actually engaging in some very different ways of um, uh, public decision making, including things like citizens' juries, um, which have been tried in Australia with mixed success. But nonetheless, I think we absolutely need to try everything we can to bring people uh, into the conversation uh, and recognise that actually they might not want to have the conversation they're wanting to have, that we're wanting them to have, and so the conversation may need to be reframed. But this is going to be a long-term project. This is not something that can be fixed uh, very quickly or very easily. And uh, sorry, I've kind of rambled around to get to the point, but I hope you've got the point. Definitely got the point. Um, and you gave us some nice practical examples too around citizens' juries as, as a possible way of thinking about how we move forward. I just want to ask you as a follow-up, not so much the how, but the who, because it does seem to me that one of the challenges that we have faced over recent years in Australia is the lack of 
leadership with vision. Um, that leadership with vision may or may not come from the current government. Who do you think, particularly if we find that the government doesn't provide leadership um, in the direction you've talked about, who do you think might lead that process in Australia? Well, one would. I mean, I'm a you know political sociologist and uh, a Democrat, so I'm um, you know have uh, perhaps an overly optimistic view about the ability of democratic institutions to sustain themselves and to um, you know encourage leadership even when it uh, appears to be absent. So my first thought would be. Um, again, um, if if the prime minister is looking for a legacy, a positive legacy, uh, he now has the space and the platform and the numbers to be able to uh, to lead, to have a vision um, that is about a future for Australia, uh, that is a long term vision. So I would certainly want to start there. Um, if for those people who are rather more sceptical of um, the uh, the political class's ability to uh, to think and practice leadership in in that way, um, then for me it it would definitely have to be some kind of coalition of um, community sector actors, but also um, the business community. I mean, you you can't engage in this kind of um, major policy transformation by assuming that. Um, people are going to position themselves on different sides of the debate. You have to start from a, a premise that um, you know this is a, a serious situation for Australia, you know, an emergency situation for Australia. And wherever you are, whether you're in the business sector or the not-for-profit sector, this is a conversation that you need to contribute to. Um, so for me, whether it's the Business Council of Australia or whoever it is, there absolutely must be um, a, a coming together of people with skin in the game, but not just skin in the game for now, skin in the game for uh, for the longer term. Um, but that must include uh, people whose livelihoods depend on it because we know from experience that if you don't involve those people, both their lives are uh, changed irrevocably, uh, but also um, that they will they have no reason um, to accept that what they're being told as um, you know, the important thing they need to do to secure the future um, is really meaningful. Um, and why wouldn't you in that case just go for the short term? Thanks, Helen. And we'll be returning to some of these discussions um, on the pod towards the end of July when we have a very special podcast guest. We have Professor Philip Alston, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. Um, and he'll be talking to us on the pod about a range of these issues, as well as giving a public lecture on climate change, human rights and poverty. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to picking up on some of these issues again at that point. As we, we get towards the end of our discussion today... We've only had the, one wish each. No, we, 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 I slipped in climate change as the second one that I gave to each of you. <laughs> Remember I said I'm going to subvert the democratic process. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a final wish, having, having assumed that the second one was, was around climate change, which was really Helen's first. Um, so if you, if you had the, the, the final wish from, from the, the genie in the magic lamp, what would it be? It might be anything from wishing that the Australian women's football team, which has actually won qualifying matches at the World Cup, was paid the same as the men. It could be through to human rights issues and the ongoing abuses of children in detention or anything else that you want to raise, they would just be two of mine. <laughs> and Nala, let's come back to you for the the final wish. <laughs> I've got a couple of a couple of wishes for that last wish. I'm just going to take the liberty of adding a little bit extra. Um, the first bit is a constant, uninterrupted flow of funding to the arts, um, as well as the climate. If what are we fighting for? If not. Um, for the arts. We're all enriched, uh, even if we don't know it, with, with more exposure to the arts. Um, but leaving that for a moment, the other thing I would um, wish for is uh, enshrining human rights in the Constitution, a Bill of Rights or, or something like that, which would hopefully lead to a whole lot of reforms, not just from Canberra, not just political reforms, but reforms and shifts in the culture of the whole nation, including tre a treaty or treaties. Thanks, Anala. Janine. 
how can I have just one? Mm-hmm. Um, you can slip a few I, more I in if you I know, wish. I like, I like the way you do that. That was, yeah. very, that was quite a, well, my quite a sight. Very, you know, <laughs> quite a sight to be old. Yeah. Um, I was really fascinated recently in the city of Melbourne, the election of um, relatively new mayor, and she came to speak to a, a group of students um, and talked about how they had sort of flipped the whole idea of how to deal with the issue of rough sleeping in uh, the central business district by taking an approach of care first. And I thought, what a revolution this would be <laughs> to the way we thought about how policy was made. Um, instead of trying to move people along or build architecture as we do that stops people from being able to lay down or find them for leaving their belongings on the street when they've got nowhere to go, if we actually thought about um, just attacking this problem in the start from a caring perspective, it was an extraordinary um, sort of revolutionary idea. She was in the room with 110 or so pretty senior people from across Australia and, and New Zealand who have in their, um, in their remit the ability to do that. And I thought it was a fascinating sort of way to think about it, whether we look at um, – what the Australian government does in terms of um, dealing with irregular immigration, if I can use such language. Um, we look at, um, as Anala spoke about uh, today when we were having a public talk, the fact that every young person that's incarcerated in the Northern Territory um, is Aboriginal or from Torres Strait. When we look at what's happening um, to women who are being killed and um, on rates that are extraordinary across across this country. What if we came at some of those things with a notion of care? Um, we look at the low levels of pay that are given to people who are unemployed below subsistence levels. Um, we're starving that whole idea of care out of our, our systems. Um, I was in New Zealand recently in the aftermath of the massacre there and people were talking a lot about aroha, feeling a word that means many different things but is really about love and empathy and it struck me in that moment of crisis that um, this was something that poured out of people actually in a really unusual way but it shouldn't be in only moments of crisis that these ideas are flowing through our policy. So that would be my wish. Thanks, Janine. I think there's there's lots for us to think about there. And I just add, I was in Wellington a, a week or so ago, um, and involved in a discussion around the shift to a wellbeing budget and around the work that's being done around trying to address child poverty in New Zealand. And I think you can be perhaps begin to see that idea of care reshaping the way people are thinking in New Zealand, and that is an incredibly powerful thing to witness. And I think also something that we can learn from. Helen, what would you bring as your final wish, taking on board the fact that I've stolen one of your wishes? It's always the way. Um, you could wish for another wish, I suppose. Wish for another wish. Well, that would be the sensible thing to do, wouldn't it? Um, no, so I'm going to be entirely self-interested, um, but I think for a, a higher purpose. And so my last wish um, is that Australia develops a coherent and sustainable higher education policy. We haven't had a sensible higher education policy in Australia for close on a decade. And um, we get stuck in particular debates. The Productivity Commission today has come out with a report on the demand-driven system. And there, there are lots of reviews and reports and so on and so on. But we don't have, it seems to me in this country, a a sense of care, just to pick up on that term, for education and in particular for higher education. We seem to uh, regard it, and maybe this is a particularly Australian thing of, um, you know, um, having to uh, be um, somewhat quiet, if not openly hostile to um, the role of higher education. But just in terms of the issues we've been talking about today, you know, some of the best knowledge and expertise we have on climate change, whether it's thinking about economic modelling, whether it's thinking about how we address the economics and the governance system of the Murray-Darling Basin, whether it's about um, 
trying to understand um, the the notion of what it means to um, live in a place for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and what that heritage looks like and many, many issues besides. The level of expertise that is held in universities and the ways in which that expertise um, can be gifted um, and is gifted every day um, to the public, to policymakers, to, to, to whoever um, wants to, to receive it. Uh, it seems to me that we, we are not in Australia honouring um, what comes out of our universities on a regular basis. And, when, and by that, n- not honouring it, we're, we're then not encouraging people who could and should make a, a contribution um, to go into higher education. It is not seen as an attractive, and indeed we don't make it an attractive proposition. It's a very precarious place to, to work for um, emerging scholars. But it matters um, not just because, and, I, and this is not an economic argument, although you can make one. Um, you know, we've talked about universities for too long in this country as um, just an instrument of trade. You know, it's one of our best exporting industries. We make, you know, huge amounts of money from it. We understand universities now as businesses. I don't decry any of that particularly, but I think we've lost the sense of why we need to value uh, universities and what they give us. Um, just by virtue of their being. Um, and so I would like to see some really clear and sustainable policy on um, on universities and indeed why we should value education, not just as a um, something that happens between the ages of five and 21, but something that you, you carry on um, throughout your lifetime. I don't think that is self-interested at all. And I, I like the idea of seeing education as a gift or seeing what the role that universities play as as a gift to the nation. I think that's incredibly powerful. I I wanted to just ask what you may well see as a loaded question, but to to ask you to reflect. Um, I agree about the importance of university education, but it does seem to me that one of the things that we neglect in Australia is also the importance of education from early childhood all the way through to university and beyond. We tend to think about early childhood education as childcare, um, so women can get back to work. We underpay and undervalue teachers in primary school and high school. We see lower and lower ATARs being acceptable for people who have perhaps one of the most important and challenging jobs in the country. Um, So we thought that preface, it is clearly a loaded question, but Mm -hmm. I I wonder if you could just perhaps extend your comments a little bit to think about education more broadly in, in Australia. Yeah, and I, I don't, uh, you know, don't disagree with with any of that. I think there there is a um, a, a sense in which um, education has, if it's talked about at all, it tends to be talked about purely as a way of getting people ready for work. Um, that what we are doing is we are training the next. Uh, you know, round of, of workers, whether they're in, you know, high tech industries, whether they're in innovative, groundbreaking uh, ventures, or whether they're in um, trades and skills that we're always going to to need. Um, and by turning everybody into a kind of, uh, you know, an, uh, an actor that generates revenue for somebody else, or indeed for themselves, we're, we've lost, I think, the idea of of the importance of education for its own sake. And that, you know, and, and part of the problem I think in Australia is that's become a conversation that, you know, people immediately wrinkle their nose up and say, oh, you know, you're just being soft and you're just, you know, um, you're not taking these things seriously. I think there's nothing more serious than giving people the opportunity to have a well-rounded education from whatever age is considered appropriate um, and taking seriously what that means for the kinds of skills and expectations we should have of um, our teachers, whether they're in schools or in um, institutions of of higher education. Of course, they should be valued. Um, I think probably higher education, and again, it depends where you are, is is slightly um, more privileged in, in in Australia than maybe it is in other parts of the world. But um, having said that, um, there is nothing that should be prized more highly than education um, wherever it is. My concern is, um, I think in Australia, certainly in recent times, has fallen victim to this idea that in order to secure 
good quality outcomes, you have to centralize everything, you have to be able to measure everything, you have to turn everything into league tables. And, you know, I can understand the logic for that. But um, you then just get into the game of um, only measuring things you can measure rather than measuring the things that matter. And um, that, I think, has been a, a real problem. And it, is, it has not helped us understand the broader contribution that education can make. So yes, it was a loaded question. And yes, I agree with you. Um, but I think it's going to take um, a lot more um, more rounded understanding of all of the component parts of what makes a, uh, a what we would like to see as a good citizen than perhaps we've thought about thus far. We have come to the end of our time together, but there are so many messages of wisdom that, that I will take from this conversation, um, and I hope our listeners do as well. I guess if I was to summarise, I would think about this conversation in terms of vision, stewardship and care as the three things that need to be thought through. Uh, and so I am going to send my policy genie directly to Parliament House and to the office of Prime Minister Scott Morrison and hope that he listens. Um, and while we're waiting for a response, let me thank each of you, Anala Cooper, Janino Flynn and Helen Sullivan um, for your time and insights today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And listeners, don't go away because very soon we will have part three of our podcast where we'll go over some of your questions, your comments and your suggestions for future pods. But now let's hear from Mark Kenny about his Democracy Sausage podcast. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back and thanks once again to our guests today, Helen, Inala and Janine. I really enjoyed that discussion and I'm keen to hear what you thought of it, listeners. Please do let us know in the usual ways. Reach us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum, on email where we're podcast at policyforum.net or best yet, jump on the Facebook group where Policy Forum Pod on there and let us know your thoughts. Really keen to continue the conversation and hear your own suggestions about what policy you think the new government should put in place. Now, Sharon has had to leave us like the genie in a bottle she was talking about. She has come along. She's uh, granted our three wishes in producing a podcast, but she's had to shoot off. But standing in for Sharon, I'm delighted to welcome to the studio, Yulia Ahrens. Hello, Yulia. Hello, Martin. Very excited to be here. So what did you think of that discussion today? I think we've had some really interesting insights, and I think uh, Sharon was... Really good and sticking to our genie analogy, which she I really went to town on the genie. She, she absolutely went to town on it, and I'm really looking forward to uh, listen to it again. Yeah, there were some great discussions in in there, and some really good suggestions as well, which focus on some huge challenges facing society. I I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I hope you did too, listeners. Now, I want to turn our attention to some action that we've been seeing on the Facebook group. It's always a fantastic place for stimulating discussion around public policy. Now, I want to turn our attention to that Facebook group for some really fascinating discussions that we've been having on there, but also some suggestions for future pods, which I'm going to come to in a second. But first of all, I'd like to welcome a few new members of that Facebook group. So hello to Josh Ellums, Martin Carrasco-Reyes, Stephen Wenzel, ANU Learning Communities, Shireen Lamand, Tang Du, and Owen Lawson. Welcome to all of you. It's great to have you as part of the group, and we look forward to hearing your comments and suggestions about the podcasts. And special thanks to Shireen, who's given us a great suggestion, actually, for what we should talk about on the podcast. She wrote, what about a pod about other approaches to mitigate climate change? 
Most discussions are around energy generation, but what about building standards, forest logging, native vegetation clearing? She also suggested, she's been very busy on the Facebook page, this is fantastic. She also suggested, what about a pod looking at what it would take to establish a plastic recycling industry in Australia or eliminate single-use plastics. Now, that prompted a bit of discussion on the Facebook group, as you'd expect. And Joanne Chen, hello, Joanne, uh, she replied, the ACT government have just launched a project and upcoming events for reducing single-use plastic in Canberra. They've released a discussion paper and have launched a series of community info sessions to receive ideas on what Canberra's next steps should be. And people can submit their ideas. And in fact, there's a link there which is uh, on that Facebook group. Uh, all that to say, this would be a topical pod topic, which I'm sure the government would love to listen to. What do you think about that, Yulia? Would you do you reckon we should do a podcast which looks at how we go about eliminating single use plastics? I'm super keen to actually get into that because that's always something that really boggles my mind when uh, since moving to Australia, I don't really understand firstly how the recycling rules work here, and secondly, I think single use plastic is such a big issue if we just look at how many straws everyone's using when you go into a restaurant or how much our fruit and vegetables is wrapped in plastic every every time you go to the supermarket is something that I find really interesting and I'd love to hear more about how we could actually maybe replace single-use plastic or whether there's cases where we don't even need it at all. It is horrifying to see individual bits of fruit wrapped up in like sort of multiple layers of plastic. It's just so unbelievably wasteful. It, it drives me nuts whenever I see someone in a supermarket um, who buys like something like a piece of ginger and then puts it into one of these single-use plastic bags to take it away. I wonder why on earth would you do that? And most of the vegetables that you're going to eat, you're going to wash anyway. So yeah, I'd be very interested to see what alternatives we have. So there you go. Yulia declares war on all of you people buying ginger in supermarkets and sticking it in plastic bags. Well, I think that would be a war worth fighting. So thank you very much, uh, Joanne, for your comments there. And thank you also, Shireen, for those really excellent suggestions. Now, another suggestion I want to cover is Liam Hughes, friend of the pod and frequent uh, commenter and uh, question lever. We, we always love hearing what he's got to say. He had another idea for a podcast and he says... Has there been a policy forum pod on fiscal policy? Our politicians, especially our current government, spend a lot of time talking about debt and deficit. Now, I'm pretty sure that we haven't done a podcast about fiscal policy, but what do you reckon about that idea, Yulia? I think it's a it's a great idea and it's something that is very complex and it would be nice to actually bring that to you listeners in a way that it's easy to understand then because I can definitely claim for myself that I understand very little about fiscal policy and I think if we could pull that off in an interesting way and I surely have some people here at Crawford School that would be great to have a discussion with about this and I think I'll, I'll really enjoy listening to that and I hope you would too. So thank you very much for that suggestion, Liam. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Liam. I think this is a good idea because I find the political discourse, which seems to be so focused on this idea of you know debt and deficit, really kind of perplexing. I completely agree with you there, Martin. I think it's a thing that is often oversimplified and then used in political agendas and. There's always been a lot of talk during the elections about how we need to keep our debt low. And that's surplus, the magic surplus. The magic surplus, the magic word surplus. So it would be really good to find out more about what's actually behind that and maybe for people to make more informed decisions in the future. So, all right, that may well be a future podcast for us. So many thanks for that suggestion, Liam. And Liam, I'm pretty sure that by now you must have racked up enough comments and questions to have earned yourself a Policy Forum pod mug. So do go back and check. And if you've got those five, let us know in the comments and we will get one out to you. 
Now, we're really keen to get all of your thoughts on the topics that uh, we cover on the podcast. So do keep those comments and questions coming in on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum, on the Facebook group Policy Forum Pod, or you can shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're wherever you find your podcasts. And perhaps you might want to leave us a review as well. We've had some really nice ones, haven't we? We did. We did. We're always happy to see you commenting on the podcast. It always gives us good feedback about how we can do better in the future as well. So do let us know if you think we need to improve on something. We're always keen to do that. That's it for this week. But don't forget, Democracy Sausage will be back on Monday with Mark and Maria serving up a sizzling hot plate of political analysis. And Policy Forum Pod will be back next Friday. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Julia, see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.